verses 1 through 7. If you have one of the blue Bibles that's around you, that page is 369. Give you a second to turn there or navigate there. The word of God reads, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot that is tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at Midtown. Um, if you're new with us, uh, at this point in the service every week, we have the opportunity to uh, hear and listen to Scripture. Um, and so I want to explain what we do and why we do it, because depending on where you're coming from, it might be a little bit different than what you're used to. Uh, typically, there's like a person that does that, uh, and that's kind of their thing, and we kind of uh, have more of a team approach, and I want to just point you to some scripture, um, just so there's no confusion about what we're doing. First um, uh, Timothy 4, Paul, the apostle who planted uh, the churches in the New Testament primarily, writes to his young mentee, uh, up-and-coming partner in ministry, Timothy, and kind of explaining to him like what he should be doing uh, as a pastor. And he says, you should devote yourself primarily to three things. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, it's pretty obvious. Devote yourself to exhortation, which is kind of the explaining and applying scripture to life. And that's what we see a lot of happening throughout the Bible and the different public speaking gifts. It's taking scripture and, and helping people make sense of it. Because if you've ever read the Bible, it's kind of it can be confusing uh, to understand what different people are saying and writing. You have over 40 different authors. This is kind of like a compilation over 1,600 years kind of put together and compiled and edited into what we have now as the Bible and so the, the, it's an important uh, piece of that is, is explaining it, interpreting it, and applying it to people's lives. And then he says also the teaching. And that word teaching in the New Testament um, and the way that Paul use it, is, uses it is kind of the idea of authoritative teaching, preserving uh, and laying down the apostolic traditions that were handed down about the life of Jesus. And so at the time when Paul wrote that, obviously those were all oral. There were no written scriptures uh, until just a few years after that. But at the time, it was passing down and preserving and guarding doctrine because there was a lot of heresy and there was a lot of crazy out there uh, in the ancient Near East in terms of what was being taught. And so um, I, I want to read you Romans 12. Um, that, that's kind of the primary domain of the, the elders and the pastors of the church is really to guard and preserve and transmit our doctrine, our teaching, uh, those things that have been preserved over centuries and handed down to us to make sure that all that we do as a church is aligned with that, is in sync with that from 
not just what happens here on Sunday in terms of the liturgy and the singing, but in our missional community life and our discipleship, uh, in every single arena of the church, our job is to make sure that uh, that is being faithfully communicated over and over and over again. And in that sense, there's really nothing new. We are uh, ancient in uh, kind of coming under the words of Scripture and seeing ancient wisdom there for us to continue to learn from. Uh, but in Romans 12, Paul also says to the church, uh, for as in one body, uh, verse 4, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. We belong to one another. Having gifts, then, the word there is literally graces, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use those gifts. And notice the different kinds of gifts. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, it was kind of a speaking gift. Uh, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, there's that word teaching again. The one who exhorts in exhortation, which is that explaining and applying. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And there's all kinds of other gifts that are not mentioned here in this passage. And the point is uh, that, that we often uh, from, uh, will, will do that exhortation in the context of, of what we call a sermon. It's kind of come to be called a sermon. It's looked different throughout church history. But it's a time of exhortation. It's a time of explaining and applying uh, the ancient truths and applying them to the times and places in which we live. And so in, in kind of uh, obedience to Paul's command, we recognize there are many gifted men and women in our church who are not pastors, right? Non-ordained men and women who've been gifted to build up the body using their speaking gifts in ways that uh, encourage us and challenge us and call us to a deeper faith in Jesus. And we need all those gifts to become the fullness of all that God's called us to be within uh, kind of the, uh, the structure that God's given us in the New Testament in terms of pastors and elders. And so I just want to explain that because that might be a little bit different for some of you and some of us might make assumptions about what we see and what we mean. And, and that's what we mean when we, when we uh, have these times. It's a big load to be able to spend time preparing sermons. I know that some of you think it's just like somebody gets on Saturday night and just opens their Bible and cracks open a devotion for five minutes and then comes on Sunday. But there's a lot of work that goes into that. So I'm thankful this morning that we have uh, two members of our church. If you guys want to come on up, introduce them. Krista and Connor Hitchcock, uh, who are uh, leaders here, the members, been members for some time, and uh, lead a missional community here. They are going to be teaching as we kick off Advent here uh, from Isaiah uh, chapter 9. And so, so thankful. Both of them uh, are super busy with life. Uh, running, Connor's running a new business. Uh, Krista runs her own business, photography, and also serves on staff here uh, in an administrative role. And so they've spent a lot of time uh, praying over this and preparing this. And so thank you guys so much for your hard work, and we're eager to hear from you. So let's welcome them as they come to encourage us. Hi, everyone. I'm Krista, and like Brandon mentioned, this is my husband, Connor, and we're Covenant members here at SOMA. The first thing I'm going to do is move this because I'm convinced it's going to catch on fire. It's been really stressing me out. Um, so we are so humbled to be sharing with you guys this morning. Um, we have the honor of kicking off our Advent series, but before we do so, I'm going to hand it over to Connor, and he's going to open us up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for who you are. Um, we thank you that <clears throat> you sent your one and only son, um, that you so loved the world, that you so loved us, created in your image, that you sent your son to earth um, to walk among us. Um, to live a perfect life, to die for us. I pray that we never get sick of that. I pray that um, that truth simply resonates in us this morning. Uh, we welcome your Holy Spirit into this room. He's already here, but um, we formally welcome him um, to soften our hearts um, as we, we read in your scriptures. 
let the words that you want uh, to resonate with us jump off the page to us. Um, and I pray as Krista and I speak, um, may you, your spirit um, speak as you want to speak um, and let us get out of the way if it's different from what we're trying to say, Father. We love you so much, Lord. Amen, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you were raised in the church like myself, then you're probably familiar with this word, Advent. In full transparency, for most of my life, it was just another church word, like the formal way of saying the Christmas season, the usted, if you will. If you pressed me, I would have said that it's like a countdown to Christmas, a definition I would have scraped together for my limited word association, our Advent calendar. I remember waking up every morning in December and eagerly updating the felt calendar in our hallway. We weren't lucky enough to have a chocolate version, but I digress. I loved the visual every morning as we inched closer to Christmas Day. The snow would fall, the excitement would build, and there was no denying the magic of Christmas. And for many years, that's all Advent was to me. In my churchiest words, it was a season of anticipation as we await the celebration of Christ's birth. And I wasn't wrong, but I think I was missing a lot, at least half, in fact, because we believe that Advent is twofold. Yes, it's the celebration of Christ's birth, but it's also the anticipation of his second coming. Somehow that second part doesn't seem to be talked about as much. It's easy to read the Bible and think that it's all in the past. Like we live on this side of the story instead of smack dab in the middle of it. But the truth is we are still living in anticipation in this very moment. And therefore Advent isn't just this fake exercise where we merely imagine what it must have been like to live before Christ. Instead, it's the reality of living in a kingdom that is already, but not yet. And so if you take anything away from our time with you today, we hope it's this. In Advent, we both celebrate and anticipate our unexpected king. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text. But before we do so, it's important to know where we are in history. At the time Isaiah wrote this passage, the people of Judah were also in anticipation of an unexpected king. It was roughly 700 BC, and Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. King Ahaz ruled over the kingdom of Judah, and things were not looking great. The nearby Assyrian Empire was rising in power and in violence and was quickly conquering all of the surrounding nations. In response, Judah's neighboring countries decided to form an alliance, and they threatened King Ahaz to join them, saying that if he didn't, they would invade Judah. But King Ahaz was unsure. Instead, he entertained an alliance with Assyria, because if you can't beat them, join them. But before Ahaz makes the decision, God sends the prophet Isaiah to give him a sign. Isaiah tells Ahaz that the alliance will not be able to defeat Judah, but King Ahaz doesn't believe. Instead, he chooses to put his trust in Assyria, and the result is pure devastation. In the end, Judah is not only attacked by the Assyrians, but also invaded by the Egyptians. And at the end of chapter 8, uh, Isaiah describes the people as looking toward the earth to see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is actually the same language that David uses in Psalm 23 when he describes the valley of the shadow of death. For all practical purposes, hope was lost and darkness reigned in Judah. So this brings us to our text today in chapter 9, where Isaiah begins to prophesy a brighter future. Beginning in verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah says, keep your head up. 
one day this land will be made glorious. And while those words would be comforting, comforting to the people of Judah, I imagine they would be difficult to believe. Because the region that Isaiah is describing here in the northern part of Judah was the worst of the worst. It was the first place to be attacked by the Assyrians, and it suffered the worst damages. In fact, most of the people living there would be taken into exile, and over the next century, the area would be repopulated with Gentiles. Some of you may notice a footnote translating Galilee of the nations to Galilee of the Gentiles. And this reputation stood the test of time. 700 years later, when Philip tells Nathanael that he's found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael would reply, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And yet, as we know, this is where God chooses to enter the world. This is where God would shine a bright light, in Galilee of the Gentiles, land of the outcasts, the misfits. Perhaps the most unexpected place a Jew of the day would ever imagine their king to hail from. And more than that, look at verse 6. He comes as a baby, a helpless, fragile baby born to an unwed teenage mother. Now, I know we all know this story, but let's take a minute to think about it. Unwed pregnancies have become commonplace in our day, but at the time this was written, Joseph would have been well within his legal rights to expose Mary and call for her stoning. Mary's pregnancy was beyond scandalous. It was a threat to her life. It would have been shame upon her house, and yet this is the unexpected way that God chooses to enter the world. I've actually had the privilege of working with some teen moms in our community through Young Lives, and I can tell you that despite our modern culture, these girls are not free from judgment and shame in their lives. I've been told that it often feels like they walk around with a scarlet letter, both inside and outside the church. And so I like to imagine if the Christmas story took place today. If one of these young girls in our city gave birth to the claimed son of God, how would we react? Would we let reputation cloud our judgment? Would we turn up our noses, refuse to believe her testimony, or that God could ever work in such an unexpected way, through such an unexpected person? And yet this is the path he chooses, the woman he chooses to validate. How grateful I am that his ways are not my ways. And so then, once Jesus is born, you would expect peace to come on earth, right? Isn't that what the text says? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. But again, we should know by now that God does the unexpected. Instead of peace on earth, Jesus is born into quite the opposite circumstance. King Herod has called for the slaughtering of all the males under two years old in Bethlehem, and as a result, Mary and Joseph must flee to Egypt. By definition, they had a well-founded fear of persecution and were refugees fleeing their home country. Not exactly the king that the Jews had in mind. But Jesus wasn't in too much a hurry to save the world, but he flexed his power and skipped over this part. He didn't become wealthy or famous, royal in the way we would expect, or socially elite. He was unexpected. Let me put it this way in a passage that I found in the Hope Project devotional. Jesus was born in a dirty stable to a small audience of shepherds and, and barn animals. This is the event by which Western civilization measures time, B.C. and A.D., and yet it went unnoticed by most of the people of the time and place. God's kingdom is so upside down that if we're not careful, it's almost offensive to us. That God would come through a young, unwed girl. That he would be a child refugee seeking asylum. But God's ways are not our ways. They're better. And so finally, just when you think you start to understand this prophecy, it takes another turn. Let's go back to the text beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, sometimes I think the ancient Jews get a bad rap. We sit on this side of history and say, didn't you get it? How did you misinterpret so many prophecies? But I can't say I blame them. Reading this text, it would be easy to expect a political ruler, an earthly king who would protect their people from this time forth and forevermore. And so when Jesus, this supposed Messiah born to an unwed mom, once a refugee, grows up in Galilee and is sentenced to death on a cross, I understand why some eyebrows would be raised. Wasn't there supposed to be no end to his government, to his peace? But again, God does the unexpected. Now, let me be clear. He's not walking back on his promises. His promises were just bigger and better than the Jews of the day ever imagined. They wanted an earthly king when God was giving them a heavenly king. And I think we often find ourselves in a similar place. In the words of C.S. Lewis, we are ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We most often see the problems right in front of us. Our health, our finances, our careers, and these are legitimate concerns that God cares deeply about. But ultimately, he saw the bigger issue. He saw a people that needed to be reconciled to himself, a people that could not defeat sin and death without the source of life itself. And so I think we've covered a few ways in which our king was unexpected at the time of his birth, but he's also unexpected in a lot of our own lives. I'm sure there are some of us sitting in this room who never expected to be back in a church building on Sunday morning. Some of us who had written off Christianity altogether or maybe never believed it in the first place, maybe still don't today. Much like the people of Judah, we are tempted to look to the earth, thinking that surely something safer will save us because a supernatural God sounds a little scary, but maybe modern medicine will save us or a successful career or a white picket fence family. But the truth is those fail us every time. Sure, a good paycheck may bring temporary relief or an intact family may bring some stability, but we all face the same ultimate reality, death. And in the meantime, we all face the same fears of being unknown, unloved, and without purpose. And this is why we celebrate the unexpected king. Because if he had been what the people of Judah expected, he would merely be a good political ruler. But his ways are not our ways. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He is the light of the world. And so instead of asking us to do the impossible and make our way to him, he came to us in the form of this unexpected baby boy. C.S. Lewis calls this incarnation, God made man, the grand miracle. And this is the gospel, that God made a way where there was none. Through the death of Jesus, our sins have been paid for. Through the resurrection of Jesus, our separation power has been defeated. And through faith in Jesus, we are viewed as holy and blameless before the God of the universe, reconciled to his glory forever and ever. I think that's why Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Because although the waves will come, and I'm sure many of us are swimming in them now, we are anchored to this reality, to this unexpected king. And our confidence in him allows us to sleep through the storm because, as we know, the gospel changes everything. Connor often tells the story of how his ministry leader in college once got on stage and proclaimed that John 3.16 was now his favorite verse. 
For those of us that were raised in the church and maybe even outside of the church, this statement may induce an eye roll. It seems like this verse has been plastered over everything from church walls to the bottom of Forever 21 bags. But Connor's ministry leader wasn't oblivious to the verse's reputation as cliche. His point was this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How could we ever get sick of that good news? For we are truly helpless without it. And that's what we're celebrating this Advent season, that we were people walking in the darkness and a great light has shone upon us. But let's catch that we didn't shine the light. We didn't shine a light into the sky and find God. No, for God so loved the world that he came to us. He saved an undeserving people, and so we forever celebrate the first coming of the unexpected king. All right, folks, so I'm just going to give it to you straight. I read uh, all seven of the Left Behind books growing up, in addition to the 40 kids' versions. So, <laughs> second coming part, I, I got you covered here. Um, but in all seriousness, um, I probably would say some wild things based on those books. But Jesus is coming again, which is incredible. Like, Jesus is coming again. Uh, and a lot of the times, what Krista was saying earlier, too, is that I think we, and I know I certainly, find myself mainly just in a retrospective um, outlook among Christmas, um, which, frankly, we should be what... God has done is incredible, right? Sending his only son into the world, um, into a, a manger um, to be our savior. Um, and so it deserves a whole month just dedicated towards celebrating that. Um, but he also said when he lived this perfect life and died and rose again and he ascended into the sky, he said, I'm coming back. And it's almost like you're like, that's kind of like a footnote. No, like, oh, he's coming back. But like, no, Jesus is coming back. Um, which is an incredible statement. You know, we take Isaiah 9, written 700 years before Jesus, as not simply just like a, a prophecy or a guess, but it's something that solidly came true. And if Jesus is saying, I'm returning, uh, we need to treat that prophecy um, with seriousness. We need to take him at his word. Uh, I believe that we need to start orienting our lives as though we believe that is a future reality and a future event and not simply just um, a prophecy that he spoke ascending into the sky. This second piece of Advent that I think we overlook, um, looking forward with great anticipation to Jesus' return, is similar to the first in many ways. We look forward to the same promises that are outlined uh, that Isaiah prophesies, uh, but in greater and full measure. In Isaiah 9, in that text that we've been reading this morning, the Messiah is promised to come to earth and bring with him an unexpected hope. Um, and as we look um, to him returning again, that hope means he will make all things new and perfect. He is to bring an unexpected joy. The book of Revelation says that he will wipe away every tear and death and pain shall be no more. That's incredible. He is to bring an unexpected peace. Um, his rule and reign in his kingdom firmly established. We're building it now, but completely established with the new heaven and the new earth. As surely as Isaiah's prophecy about the first coming was fulfilled, we believe that Jesus' word about his return will be proven true. Therefore, we view it as that future event, that future reality. Uh, we don't know, of course, the date and the time. Only the Father knows, and 
It may happen in our lifetimes. It may not. But it is a future event, and I know I need to start thinking of it as such. Because in my life, at least, the second coming of Christ has all too often just been a belief that I mentally agree upon and hold in my mind, but it doesn't change my every single day, my reality. I think in part, it's hard to conceptualize, right? It's hard to imagine it happening on this exact same earth we walk where kids play rec league basketball and long john silvers are somehow a thing. Like that earth is the earth that Jesus will break open the sky and come down to. (laughs) Thank you. Like, yeah, we're going to die one day, right? And we've, if you grew up in church, or you hear it all, you've heard it since the moment you can remember. Like, we're going to die one day, and then we're going to go be with Jesus. And that, for me at least, has been easier to conceptualize, even though it's still difficult. But I still can't get over the fact, on this very same earth, where again, Long John Silvers inexplicably exists, that Jesus is coming back to make all things new and all things perfect. What if we actually lived as though we were anticipating that return of our king? Anticipating him to break open the sky and come back to earth. How would that change our lives if it would at all? I think one place, uh, a really great place to look and see how to model our lives with that knowledge, with um, accepting that as a reality, is the early church. They, of course, walked side by side with Jesus. Everything that we celebrate through December, the coming of Jesus, they witnessed with their eyes. They touched the holes in his hands. They watched him ascend to heaven and say, I'm coming back. Um, and they, they believed, many scholars agree, that he was returning in their lifetimes. So they not only had the knowledge and celebrate what we celebrate, our salvation, the coming of our king into the world, but they also were living their lives as though he would come back at any second. Um, And so I think that's how we should look to orient our lives. Um, So let's do that. And as we look at how the early church um, structured their life with celebration of Jesus coming the first time and eager anticipation of him returning to this earth, uh, we learn that we first need to orient our hope solely around Jesus. Looking back at Isaiah 9, Jerusalem, the holy city, is quite literally under siege. It's desolate. Um, there's really nothing left. It's not a stretch to say that the Jewish people's world at that time was falling apart. It's in this morass that Isaiah speaks a prophecy of hope, the greatest prophecy of hope. Your king is coming. For those living in the ancient Near East after Jesus' ascension, Jesus was the ultimate hope. Let's take a look at the uh, famous Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I've picked a few verses um, from all around the chapter, but if you follow along with me, I think you can see on the screen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Having experienced Jesus on this earth firsthand, 
these early apostles only cared to long to see him again and live their lives as such. He was their better country, their homeland, to the point where they're described as exiles and strangers on this earth. Jesus was not a hope that they held. He was the hope they held. Um, Krista listed earlier some things that we put our trust and we put our hope in. Um, job, financial security, spouse, community, relationship. Um, the disclaimer, of course, that these aren't bad things. They're good things uh, in and of themselves. But they don't save and they don't fulfill. And I'm sure you've heard that sermon a thousand times. Um, but it bears repeating. I've had the privilege in the last year being, uh, especially the last year of this church, I've been here a couple years, but to see this demonstrated really well among some members of the church that we were close to. Um, This idea that these earthly things are not um, our hope. That I've watched four members, actually, of our very own MC, shout out Yuppie Scum, that lost their jobs in 2018. Um, And that, I've tried to picture myself in that scenario, and I don't know if I would react in the way they would. Um, But it's so evident um, in each of the four instances that these people, these some couples, some singles, have reacted um, to the loss of a source of income. Um, They, their world did not cave in. Um, And it was incredible to me um, to see so plainly these people whose hope was in Jesus, whose hope, um, who they knew, look, Jesus had said he is coming, he is returning, that he is the source of life. And they truly have lived and continue to live their lives in that way. That's not to say they weren't sad or stressed out. I mean, that's a very difficult thing. But again, the source of their joy, their hope was in Jesus um, and that's been an inspiration for me, and it's actually made me now sit back and reflect and say, if my job was taken away, if um, my house was taken away, if family members or friendships um, were taken away, would I be okay? Would I stand? What am I standing on? Uh, and I do encourage you to, to go through that exercise sometime because it can be pretty revealing um, and ask God um, to increase your dependence on him. This is how the early church lived. This is how I've seen um, multiple members of my community live that I've been inspired by. And Proverbs 10, 28 says that this hope that the righteous possessed, this, the early church that we see, um, for me, the members of my MC this last year, that this hope is the hope that brings joy, leading into our second point here. And in anticipation of re- the return of our unexpected king, we must live our lives with an unexpected joy. Uh, Verse 3 of the text reads that you have increased its, the nation of Israel's, joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Um, And later we read in in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5 that we are to rejoice in our sufferings, that joy goes beyond the circumstantial, the fleeting happiness. There's a really good commentary um, by the late Anglican priest John Stott on Romans 5. Um, But one line that really stuck out to me is that it seems clear from this paragraph, referring to Paul saying we rejoice in our sufferings, that the main mark of justified believers is joy. The believers sawed in two, fed to lions, and made into human torches. Their main mark and defining characteristic that set them apart from the world they lived in and the culture they lived in was their joy. 
Could that be said about you? Could that be said about us? Um, are you a person marked and defined by joy? Is your suffering, is your response to suffering joy? If someone would describe you, would joy be one of the first words that comes out of their mouth? I hope it would. I hope it would for me, but I don't know. Um, we as Christians have Jesus' Holy Spirit living inside us. He is the guarantee and the deposit, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. The spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit living inside us gives us supernatural joy. And with Jesus' return as a reality now in our minds, as a future event, as we think about this in our hearts, minds, and spirits, we can and should experience joy in the midst of terrible trials. He has come, and he is coming. We have a deep joy that goes beyond happiness because we have a hope unshaken, rooted in the promises that we eagerly anticipate coming true, that we experience this season of Advent for. This joy is how Paul could sing praises in his jail cell, and it is our main distinguishing mark from a world tossed to and fro by circumstance. And as we anticipate the Lord's return, we orient our hope around Jesus, we live our lives with unexpected joy. And finally, we must seek to make peace as he is our peace. Let's go back again to the original text, picking up in verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth, forevermore. Verse 6 proclaims that Jesus is our Prince of Peace, an important title for two purposes. One, it is absolutely the title of the Michael W. Smith song, where the men and the women sing the different choruses, and they all go, Alpha, Omega. <laughs> More importantly, <laughs> this title reveals <laughs> a great deal about the character and nature of our God that we wait for and put our hope in. He, our Prince of Peace says to turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, to throw in your cloak when someone sues for your tunic, as we all own, to walk two miles with someone who forces you to walk one. This is our God. This is our Prince of Peace. Earlier in uh, chapter 2, Isaiah actually prophesied that our ki coming king, Jesus, will beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, turning weapons made for violence, the gardening tools. And that's some of my favorite imagery in the entire Bible. Jesus, and the Prince of Peace, and his earliest followers followed his example, and so should we. If we look again to the book of Romans in chapter 12, Paul writes that if possible, so long as it depends on us, we are to live in peace with all. We are to mirror our Lord, our Prince of Peace, who Isaiah says in chapter 11 will one day make the wolf dwell with the lamb in peace. <clears throat> On an interpersonal level, Paul says that we are to make peace whenever humanly possible, so long as it is in your power. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, ruled by our Prince of Peace, and therefore we must carry that peace from our kingdom into the world that we live, into our neighborhoods and our communities. We are to represent our Prince of Peace. Therefore, we do demonstrate that to our coworkers, to our neighbors, uh, to ultimately point back to our King, our Prince of Peace whom we are eagerly awaiting to return to this earth. This peace 
also extends beyond the interpersonal. I think it has a really um, important application on a corporate level, on a church level, on a worldwide church level. Um, because if we look at this text, Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom, a government, an administration um, surrounding, of course, our Prince of Peace. And it will be in full on the new heaven and the new earth. And he's already doing it now from the moment that he was walking on the earth. John saying, uh, make way, make way. The kingdom of heaven is near. Um, the kingdom of heaven is here, and God is building it through Soma Church, through his church on earth. It's that phrase that Krista referenced earlier, but we hear it at Soma all the time, that God's kingdom is the already but not yet. God invites us to be a part of building his kingdom this very second. And we're looking forward at all the same to the fullness of kingdom when he re- his kingdom when he returns. We don't simply have Sunday gatherings here at Soma to listen to a TED Talk or grab some spiritual tips. This church, Soma, is a body, an instrument to bring the Prince of Peace's reign and rule, his peace, into our community. We have missional communities not simply to make friends or um, have great community, which is awesome, again, that's a great thing to have, but we have missional communities so that we can bring the kingdom of peace into our workplaces, networks, and neighborhoods. Uh, like the mustard seed, Jesus' is a parable for the kingdom of God. We start small and local, utilizing our capacity given to grow and grow and grow every single day, bit by bit, until we become a tree where the birds of the air can come and lodge in its branches. We do this until all of Broad Ripple, all of Midtown, all of Indianapolis knows that Jesus is Lord. Until our Lord returns to this earth, to Midtown Indianapolis, to fully establish his rule and reign forevermore. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. In this season, we celebrate the coming of our king, both past and future. We celebrate the incarnation of God into the world, the love of God so great that he sent his only son. He is the great light that breaks forth into our dark world, into the shadow of death. Light that takes the action, our savior that takes the action. This time of Advent is a beautiful, it is a saving, it is a marvelous paradox. Christ brings hope through death. The man of sorrows brings ultimate joy. His crucifixion brings everlasting peace. And in this time of Advent, we must celebrate. If we can't be excited and joyous about God coming to the earth to save us from ourselves and sin, we cannot be be joyous nor celebrate ever. Our king came to earth and set the captives free. Hosanna in the highest. And we also recognize what it means for us today, right now, when things aren't perfect. The hope, joy, and peace that we can experience in every circumstance through his Holy Spirit. Advent is a longing for his kingdom come. For God's perfect peace and power to come reign on this very earth forever and ever. Amen. The unexpected king has come. And he is coming again. Please bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, thank you for who you are. Um, Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for um, your scripture where we can learn more about you. Where you reveal yourself to us in one of many ways. I pray in this season of Advent for the month of December that we are so intensely focused on you. Uh, You reveal to us new things from passages we've read thousands of times. 
from, from songs that we sing that we know like the back of our hand. God, I pray that something just jumps out to us and um, reveals something about your nature and character and we may fall more in love with you. Holy Spirit, tug at our heartstrings. Lead us into just an incredible pursuit of you um, as we seek to make your name known here in Indianapolis and across the world. We love you so much. Let's name we pray. Amen. Amen.